0: hello and welcome to our last squiggly podcast of 2021 and in this episode we welcome the talents behind Disney's Encanto as well as the holiday special superworm and the abominable snow baby hello there folks. lovely to see you all. I trust you're all happy and healthy, and ready for a slightly more tolerable festive season than last year's. I'm Ben Mitchell, fount of holiday cheer, joined of course by Steve Henderson.
1: Steve, how the heck are you? Ho ho hello, Ben. I always say ho ho hello on the Christmas special. That's how people know it's the Christmas special. Uh, I'm fine, thanks, mate. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. It's uh, all holly and jolly and Christmassy, and uh, yeah, I'm here in a Christmas jumper, I mean, it's a jumper and it's Christmas time, so that technically makes it a Christmas jumper, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I'll let the listeners paint a picture in their own head of uh, what, what the jumper is. But, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, Merry Christmas, chum. Merry Christmas, indeed.
0: Are you well? Are you um, uh, in good health? I
1: am in great health, yeah. Um, I, I don't know, obviously, regular listeners might have heard in the last podcast, uh, I was expecting a kid Uh that expectation has been met. Got a little baby boy. So sleep is a complete stranger to me now. Um, but, uh, and, and, and I am squirreled away in a safe room, two rooms away from, from shrieking noise. Uh, and for the baby, the baby is now two rooms away from shrieking noise as his father records a podcast, um, and shrieks into a computer. <laughs> um,
0: we've just put the kid down. No animation trivia.
1: Yeah. <laughs> It's funny whenever I talk animation to the kid it gets him off to sleep like you wouldn't believe it's, it's <laughs> wonderful. Like I go through some squiggly quiz rounds with you and, uh, and he falls straight to sleep. And all's well looking forward to uh to 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 Santa arriving and 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 yeah getting stuck into it. And we've got some fantastic Christmas telly, animated Christmas telly highlights on this podcast, haven't we Ben? Uh yes, we do indeed. We've got the sort of two
0: major TV specials We'll be talking about with their directors. I believe they're both actually going to be on Christmas Day. We've got Superworm on the BBC and Abominable Snow Baby on Channel 4. I think that's the right way around. We also have the directors and the producer of the new Disney film Encanto. Or Enchanto, I don't.
1: How do you. I think it's Encanto. Encanto. You have to uh, say it with a Colombian accent. Ah. You don't because it, it might sound horrific.
0: But yes, lots of seasonal goodness for you. We always deliver. And we did a, a Christmas special in the last podcast as well. Man alive! All the Christmas you can handle. Yeah, Christmas is pouring out of us. Yeah, I suppose Robin Robin's been out for a little while now. People have been uh, very vocal in their uh, appreciation for it. Certainly, I think it's been a big hit, so it's good to see. Uh, since then, what else has happened well math uh I mean basically, math was just about to kick off, I guess the last time we we put out a podcast, or oh, it had just kicked off yeah, and uh yeah, that seemed like good fun well, certainly, um, I had a lot of fun doing the quiz.
1: it was great wasn't it we had some we had some amazing fun we had people use their phones, we did this kind of online uh type the answers into your phone quiz system which seemed to work okay. We we got lots of uh, some fun interaction there. Uh, as as with usual, we kind of we 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 put them together uh the quiz, but um uh, Laura Beth really got stuck in this year. Last year she did a fantastic round on jobs, and this year um I I'm, I'm she, she won't mind me saying this, but this year the power went to her head. and She went crazy. <laughs> and she had the the most difficult questions that we've ever put on at the quiz. And it was such great fun. It was fantastic. And people were really scrapped. They really had to work hard. And I remember I've, I've got this. Um, I nearly tweeted it. It was a, a text message I sent to Laura. I think he was on, it was the same group that we were all in, Bent. And it was something like, um, I said, Do you not think these are too hard, Laura? And she was, it was something like, it reminded me of the bit in Rocky Four where, uh, you know, where the referee turns around or somebody turns around to Ivan Drago, who's just, you know, knocked Apollo Creed to the ground. And and he says, if he dies, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it was like and Laura Beth was like, you know, they have to work for it. You know? It's like really kind of really super harsh. But everyone who got involved in the quiz um were 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 absolutely um uh you know, they, they loved it. It was and it, and we loved it as well, I'm sure I'm speak on behalf of all of us. We love putting it together and we love uh, getting people's reactions. Um, even though right at the very end we, we realised that, you know, with us all doing separate rounds, the answer to ninety percent of the questions was the nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> um, which <laughs> which is always it's always good, isn't it, to, to, to go through everything before you go live.
0: <laughs> yeah, if in doubt, just take a punt on nightmare.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I even I even made that joke halfway through the quiz, not thinking that there would be any answers that were The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I think it was about three more answers that were The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's hard not to know our favourite film between the three of us if we had to pick one, uh, you know. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's great. It's great uh, to uh, to be back uh, doing a, a, a good old squiggly quiz it'd be nice to do it in person next year uh, up in Manchester with a heaving groaning table full of uh, quiz prizes and uh, groaning tables full of uh, uh, people taking the quiz uh, when uh, when you and I sing the do the music rounds and sing them along but yeah, uh, looking forward to that, but yeah, math went well. Um, I uh I don't remember any of it. I think I've I've blocked it out of my memory like uh somebody with uh, post PTSD. Uh, genuinely um it's uh, yeah it takes a lot to put on an animation festival, but putting on an online and an in person festival uh, was a bit of a uh, with a baby that just arrived as well was uh, was was extra extra fun as you can imagine but
0: uh, it 's an extra pair of hands
1: yeah exactly, and you know what it 's an extra seat <laughs> it 's an extra seat filled for family day as well next year, so we can we can give those <laughs> figures back to the b f i and say yep an extra <laughs> extra one member there <laughs> But yeah, uh, all's well. How
0: was the uh, the in-house aspect of it? It was great. It was yeah.
1: fantastic. We, we, had some, we had some great audiences. Um, we, we showed um, Spirited Away because it was the 20th anniversary of Studio Ghibli's uh, Spirited Away. And we literally had people climbing over each other to get in to see the film. I think people were really excited about the fact that they can see stuff in the cinemas again until uh, our good friend uh, omicron um turned up mm. uh, I think we were we were uh, you know uh, delivering the festival literally a week two weeks before that hit the news um, uh, and thankfully we've not had any reports of anyone who's caught anything from the festival which uh, we'd like to hear I think we, you know everyone was uh, very responsible which is always great um uh yeah we we're, we're lucky we are in that kind of um community, Ben, you know, the animation community the creative community, they're very uh, uh, you know, kind in that regard, you know uh, they, they, they know what's good for them put it on a mask, <laughs> but yeah, people were pe- people were, were very excited to watch uh, Spirited Away and that was the first, you know, event we put on on the family day and uh, yeah, people were just absolutely uh, hungry to get back to the cinemas and then during the week people were seeing things like Flea which has been scooping awards everywhere um, and uh, has been doing incredibly well on the short film selection. So, yeah, great to see cinemas full again. And hopefully if we all wash our hands and wear masks and all that sort of stuff and take, get our booster jabs, then um, we'll be back in person, fully in venue in 2022. Um, and, yeah, we'll, we'll see, won't we? Fingers crossed. One of the last-minute additions to the festival this year was uh, a Q and A Q&A with the, the uh, writers, co-directors, um, and producers of *Encanto*, which is the, the new Disney thing. Um, new Disney thing, blimey! Um, that's, uh, that's 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 that, I'm layering on the praise too much there, um, but yeah, the new, the new Disney feature film, um, and uh, that was one of the the more fun kind of ways of seeing that film. Because obviously, I'm up in Manchester. Um, and whenever we want to see something Ben we're quite lucky at Squiggly we get sent a, a, a preview link don't we? we we'll get a little email and we'll get a, sent a preview copy of a film or a preview copy of uh, a TV special and it'll have one of our emails blazoned across the screen so we don't um, uh, burn off DVDs and sell them at the uh, car boot sale or any of that sort of stuff which is I'm <laughs> sure people think we're going to be doing um, but Disney went one extra this year and they they said that we, I wasn't able to see a preview of Encanto unless it was in a cinema. And I said, well, I'm in Manchester. What are you going to do about that? I'm not coming down to London. And so they that we had to hire out a cinema <laughs> to watch Encanto, which uh, was brilliant. They also sent security guards down as well. Yeah. So there was like me and a couple of other math people in this huge cinema and then some security guards that... Disney had hired to come and watch the film with us um, and uh, and that was a quite an unusual experience talking to the security guards and they're like oh real is it the new Bond film Or we're like no that was months ago this is this is the Disney film oh I didn't want to see that it's like I all right. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. I didn't ask. Yeah, I yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, you can play on your phone, I, I, I bet, I guess, because, you know, you're the guy who's supposed to stop people playing on the phones. No one's going to stop you, mate. So, you know, <laughs> just do what you like. Play Angry Birds while while we're watching the film in the background. Um, but, yeah, so uh, I'm, I managed to see it on the big screen. So, um, yeah, really uh really fantastic stuff uh in canto i think uh those that will have seen it will will hopefully agree i don't know if you've managed to to catch much of it and seen seen any of the previews or uh and read any of the reviews or any of that sort of stuff ben
0: i've seen the trailer i think i think i've got a general handle on the premise um mm-hmm.
1: but yeah not watched it in full yet but it looks like fun it's great fun yeah and i think um What's, uh, what's fun about it, what's great about it is the fact that it's, they do things that Disney rarely do. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a thick layer of, um, of kind of Disney, what, what the, what the Disney press people call Disney magic, you know, but there's the, the, the of, of what you'd expect from Disney. But narratively, there's some really creative touches which I really enjoyed, really got on board with. Uh, namely, that the film—and this isn't spoiling much—the uh, film all takes place pretty much in one location. There's no kind of um, uh, there's one one kind of area that it takes place in the house and the surrounding area. Uh, whereas most Disney films, it's a quest. You know, they'll leave the house, they'll go over to another place, they'll vanquish a bad person, and uh, they'll come home having changed or whatever. Um, but this all takes place in one house And you might have seen bits in the trailer Where it looks like they're in different locations And that's all part of part of the magic of Encanto And the other thing is There's no moustache twirling baddie Which I found a real breath of fresh air You know, usually you'd, you'd expect there to be A villain or, you know A, 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 a monster of, of, of sorts that needs to be uh, you know, destroyed or, or something like that, or, or at least kind of, you know, a villain with a sidekick, you know, a talking animal or some, something like that. Uh, but none of that in Encanto. And the film, it doesn't, doesn't miss out because of it. You know, uh, they've, they've really kind of, uh, created something special here. And it's one of my favorite Disney films, uh, maybe full stop. I thought it was really good. Uh, certainly, a lot better than Raya and the Last Dragon, which was the last one that I saw. I don't know if you got, you've seen that one on Disney Plus yet, but um, yeah, it's certainly a lot better. If people were left a little bit wanting at the end of Raya, uh, then Encanto will certainly uh, fix that. Um, fix that particular need.
0: Well, that's certainly a good sign. I think that you know there is a bit of a concern, especially with all the churning out of the quote-unquote live-action remakes and the <laughs> the attitude, I suppose, to the legacy of animation within Disney and just also the fact that Disney has become this sort of all-encompassing... Like, it's everything now. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty much anything you've ever heard of. Oh, yeah, that's Disney now. Yeah. So you do... You know, there is a kind of concern of, like, okay, is this going to be diluting things a bit? So if there is still care and, and thought going into... The stories and the characters and the world-building of these films, it's a a reassuring thing to hear.
1: If anyone's not seen it yet, uh, I'm sure it'll end up on Disney Plus before too long. If you don't want to venture out into the cinemas, but uh, I would absolutely recommend it.
0: Well, as far as I can tell, it will be coming to Disney Plus in the UK on Christmas Eve, just in time to uh, shut the kids up for the holidays.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There's, there's an hour and a half of your lives back, parents. You can fill it up with whatever you want.
0: <laughs> Shall we hear from the directors of Encanto? Mmm, let's indeed. Get their, get their take on the film. I, I assume it will be a positive
1: one. Let's see. Might not be.
0: Well, this is Jared Bush and Charisse Castro-Smith, and they're talking to Squiggly's Martin Warren. Take it away.
2: How did the film fall from concept to the final product? And how did you reach the theme of family?
3: Well, you know, it's funny. It's been five years this month that we started working on this project. Um, and uh, Byron Howard and I were, were working on Zootopia. We are both musicians. We love musicals. And we knew we wanted to to tell a story through music as our next project. Um, I just finished uh, writing Moana with Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he said, I want to do another musical, but I want this one to be set in Latin America. So the first thing that we had to do is really talk about what is the story about? What are we very emotionally connected to? Um, And in speaking to each other, we realized we all had large extended families. And maybe these large extended families were great and a little complicated. And that's something that we decided that's what we want to tell a story about. So we started to research our own families. uh, And very quickly, we realized we actually didn't know our families as well as we thought we did. That These people that we grew up with, you know, like, my mom. I know my mom as my mom, not as a person. Uh, and I realized, oh, there's all these parts to her that I didn't know. And that's every member of our, my, my family. And as we talked to each other, everyone's family kind of felt the same way. And so this notion of family and perspective was really our true north. And you know, over the five years, story, you know, the stories evolved quite a bit, but that true north of family and perspective uh, always remained the same.
2: And uh, while uh, you were both developing the characters, who did you resonate with uh, the most while writing the script?
4: Oh, that's a good question. I have to say, having been an awkward, curly-haired (laughs) 14-year-old at one point in my life, uh, Mirabelle is very close to my heart. Um, I've always loved that she is... uh, kind of a unique Disney heroine in that she's so vulnerable and awkward and human and relatable. Um, and of course, Stephanie Beatrice did such an incredible job bringing her to life. She really got all the humor and, and pathos and vulnerability. Uh, it's, it's a great performance, not to mention she has an incredible singing voice as well. So I, I, I feel very close to Mirabelle.
3: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, Mirabelle is definitely close to my heart as well. You know, I think my my whole life I've had um, self-worth issues. And that's something that her character really um, goes up against. You know, she's this one ordinary character surrounded by extraordinary people. And I think a lot of us certainly now with social media look around and it, it's very easy to to question, you know, whether you belong, whether you can measure up. Uh, and so I'd say definitely Mirabelle is, is very close to me. Uh, a, a different side of me is um Augustine, who is Mirabel's uh-huh. dad. Maybe he's somewhat awkward. Maybe he tries to do a good job as a dad. Maybe he doesn't always nail it. Um, so I'd say there's a part of uh, me and Augustine as well.
2: Yeah, so you mentioned earlier that you uh, worked with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, what was it like to work with him again um, after your collaboration on Moana? And what was uh, different
3: um, from then to Encanto? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's uh, obviously, it's a dream to work with Lin-Manuel. He is such an amazing, brilliant talent on top of the fact that he's super, super collaborative. Um, And so to have, I think for both Sharice and I to have a partner as we're trying to figure out character, how to musicalize, this movie has 12 main characters, which is insane. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, Lynn saying like, I want to musicalize all of them and to help us separate, to really get to know them was really, really exciting. I think the key difference on this versus Moana is Lynn was part of this movie from day one. So five years ago, he was our partner on this. We knew that we wanted to tell the story about family. And so to have your songwriter and your creative partner be with you from the beginning really changes quite a lot. We could think about the movie truly as a musical from the beginning, uh, which is something that... Um, uh, so on Moana, both he and I joined the project uh, about two years before it ended. So we were sort of coming in, trying to figure out uh, you know how to tell that story um, and musicalize it but this was very different it was you know really organically built into the bones and the structure of the movie from uh, from the outside because
2: uh, you also previously worked with Byron Howard as directors on uh, Zootropolis or Zootopia in the US um what was it like to work with him again as directors and um I suppose it was sort of similar to uh, Lin-Manuel in terms of what was different from then
3: to Encanto? Oh man. Well, uh, like Byron's one of my favorite people of all time. He, he hired me on Zootopia 10 years ago. Um, And we are like, we always say like, it was like a, uh, like my long lost brother. We're, we're very, very uh, similar. We have very similar sensibilities and he's just, the most kind, pleasant person to work with. So um, my experience on Zootropolis was fantastic uh, because he's so collaborative and also just wants to have fun and have a good time. And he's visually amazing. He really loves uh, deep character dynamics and those emotions, but also just bringing that entertainment value. So that's definitely something as we jumped into this project that we wanted to do the same. I I think that the key difference this time around is that this is really a movie about perspective and seeing things differently and so i think for byron and i had a great time in Zootropolis, but we knew for this movie that we needed a perspective outside of our own and so mm-hmm. that's where charise comes in because we realized that we we're like we need help we need a smart person who can do this and uh, and we were very lucky to also work with charise so it's it's been a really it's it's you get to know each other really, really, really well. Uh, you know, it's these, these movies are therapy. Uh, so I've had I've had 10 years of therapy with Byron. I've now had almost four years of therapy with Sharice. So, yeah, <laughs> we, we know all the goods at this point.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So after you work on huge television hits, like uh, The Haunting of Hill- on Hill House and The Exorcist, how did you get on board on an animated Disney film?
4: That is a great question. <laughs> Um, uh, so I, my background was as a playwright and as you said, as a TV writer and producer, and, uh, actually my agents had sent this really creepy, spooky play (laughs) that I wrote to Disney animation, uh, and, Somehow that like this play about like a, a family is being eaten by the ins- from the inside basically got me a job working on a children's animated film. Um, uh, but no, I think uh, that I'm really interested in telling stories that are really that have high. Uh, emotional and personal stakes but then have some fantastical either genre or musical or some kind of element that that kind of pushes them into something more imaginative but always uh, really interested in them being relationship and character driven. As
2: a Latinx writer how important was it to tell the story and not just set in South America but in Colombia
4: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, uh, we did a ton of research over the time that we were working on this movie, which was so critical to making the movie what it was. We had a Colombian cultural trust. Uh, which is a group of architects and designers and cultural experts and filmmakers who we met with on some cases on a weekly basis who were reviewing all the scenes, looking at the script, really helping us dive in and understand how we can make the movie more and more specific to that beautiful, vibrant country. And, um, and I'll say more generally uh, myself coming from a Cuban American background, it's so special to me that this family represents the diversity that exists within a lot of Latinx families and that we don't really get to see on screen. So it's a really exciting component of this. So
0: that was Jared Bush and Sharice Castro-Smith, directors of Encanto, and Martin also got some time with the producer Clark Spencer. So let's have a listen to that, shall we?
2: As someone who has produced Disney films since 2002, with the likes of Lilo and Stitch and It Ralph... What makes Encanto different to you?
6: You know, one of the things that I'd never done, I've had the opportunity to produce five animated features at Disney Animation, was a musical. So when I heard that Jared Bush and Byron Howard, the directors on Zootopia, who i had worked with on that project, were doing a musical with Lin-Manuel Miranda, I was in. I was like, I have to be a part of this project because I've always wanted to have that challenge of how do you bring you know, musicals to life at Disney Animation?
2: And what was the um, biggest challenge or obstacle you faced as a producer on the film?
6: You know, I think there were there were a couple, if I may. One is, I, ironically, I thought to myself that a musical might be easier in some ways. I thought, you know, you have a songwriter; they're writing songs, they're helping tell that story. That might make the storytelling slightly easier, but it's not. It's infinitely more complex because you got to figure out where do those songs go, and and you have to have the right moments for the songwriter Lin Manuel Miranda to be inspired by something, so he has the song in his head. And then once the song comes out, you got to record all of the actors. There's many ensemble songs here, and we have twelve. Members of the family. So you got to record all 12 people in different parts of the world and then bring that together. And then you got to bring choreography to it. So you have to have choreographers as part of that to say, what is the dance element and how does the movement going to work? So it just layers complexity upon complexity upon complexity. I also think, though, that the story itself is a, is a really ambitious one for Disney animation because we typically tell stories where it's a buddy film. It's usually two characters, maybe three, that go off on a journey or a quest. And this one is about 12 members of a family. And within 90 minutes, we have to figure out how does the audience fall in love and understand all 12 members of the family. Even though the story is Mirabelle's, you need to know the entire family from that standpoint. And then the last piece I'd say is I think this is one of the most visually complex animated films we've ever made at Disney animation. When you look at the amount of of detail that's on the screen. When you look at 12 main characters, when you think about the music and the choreography, when you think about the layers of clothing and that each character has completely different hairstyle that all has to move, that's really complicated. And then layer in that the fact that we had to do this whole production from home. 650 people spread out in different homes. To me, all of those were, were challenges. And, and as a result, I'm incredibly proud of what the end result is and that we were able to get that all done.
2: So Disney Plus has become such a huge string service uh, over the past couple of years. How does the platform benefit Encanto or vice versa, uh, as well as other animated films?
6: You know, I think there's a couple things. One is I'm so excited that we get, you know, sort of two big opportunities with Encanto. We're going to release that on November 24th to theaters around the world. The audience gets to go see it on the big screen. And then on December 24th, in markets where Disney Plus is, it will be available on Disney Plus for families to watch. This is a family film. It's joyous. There's music, it's beautiful to look at. It's like the perfect thing to have during the holidays. So I think what's exciting is we can bring it to people wherever they are. Are, right. We can do that aspect of it. But there's a second piece to it, too, that is really exciting is at the end of a film like Encanto, you have this bittersweet moment where you have spent five years creating this story in this world and you fallen in love with these characters and you have to say goodbye it's getting released to the world and the film is done. But Disney Plus gives us this incredible opportunity to go back and explore those characters in the worlds again. We're doing it with Zootopia Plus and Baymax, which are coming to, to Disney Plus in 2022. And we're doing it with Tiana and Moana, where we get to go back to those two great characters and bring music uh, again back to, to the screen, but do it through Disney Plus. So I, I think for me, it's a really exciting time at Disney Animation.
2: And what was it like to collaborate with the Evette Marino, who was a first time producer on the film?
6: You know, it was it was so great to have Evette Marino on this film working with me. We, we partnered from the very beginning and Evette and I had worked on Wreck-It Ralph together. She was a she was a, a, the production supervisor of lighting and we had really gotten to know each other deeply at that moment. And What was critical is there was a moment during the making of this film where I was asked to also take on another position within the studio and I had to make a choice and I didn't want to leave this film because I loved the idea of doing a a musical and I love this film so much. So I was able to, the only reason I was able to actually step into the position as president of Disney Animation and kind of balance both was because of that. And the other piece I would say, which was really, really fun, is I remember what it was like when I did my first animated film, which was Lilo and Stitch. And there's that whole part where you're just learning learning everything's new every aspect of it is new even though you think you know what it takes to be a producer you don't until you actually step into those shoes and therefore it's all super exciting and and really um enlightening and for me to be able to partner with her and and be a part of watching her go through that for the first time was really exciting she did just a brilliant job it was a great partnership that was clark spencer producer of Encanto,
0: speaking with martin warren Thanks to the whole team there for uh, providing their insight. Once again, Encanto, I believe, is coming to uh, Disney Plus in the UK on Christmas Eve. Keep your eyes open for it. Superb. What else has been going on?
1: What's the next Christmas present we got to unwrap then? Um. Oh, it's a really sad one. <laughs> in my notes.
0: <laughs> oh, it sucks. Uh, I assume you probably heard about uh, Gian Alberto Bendazzi.
1: Yes, yeah. Very sad news.
0: Who I did not have the pleasure of knowing. I did enjoy his book a lot. I don't have the three-part book series that came up more recently, but he did a book called 100 Years of Cinema Animation, which uh, was a really, really wonderful repository of, um, well, 100 Years of Cinema Animation. You know, he was definitely a guy. I think what I really always sort of appreciated about him as, I suppose, an academic writer... Uh, certainly, as an animation historian is that i 'm not sure if you got this vibe from him as well, but he didn 't have any kind of like chip on his shoulder about enjoying animation and cartoons for you know what they were, and there was no impulse to kind of pseudo intellectualize every fucking thing. <laughs> which which has ruined so many books that would have had, you know, a lot of potential uh, otherwise. They're books with great intentions at the outset, I suppose, of what they're talking about. And there's, I, I had thought I had a pretty thorough knowledge of that, you know, doing as many book reviews for Squiggly and, you know, research for, you know, my own books, which are I, I don't think you could call my books so, well, certainly not uh, intellectual. I try and be honest about how I feel about animation and try and do it in my own voice. But from going to academic conferences through, you know, Laura doing a PhD at the moment and through having to, like, read, well, I've been reading some of the books that she's been having to read. Mother of God. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, 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 oof. <laughs> it is amazing how long a journey certain writers will take to make no fucking point whatsoever. <laughs> Whereas people like, you know, Jan Alberto and, you know, I'd like to think you and I and the other people who write for Squiggly and quite a few people, I, I you know, I do admire their writing because they're, they're just happy to talk about what they're talking about. They're not talking about, like, some kind of sociopolitical nuance to, you know, so the way Tom and Jerry, like, blinked at each other. Like, there's no kind of mining for cultural legitimacy. The cultural legitimacy... Mm should speak for itself but some people I don't know maybe like you know something about their parents or their peers kind of giving them grief for like liking cartoons and they kind of fight against that to really kind of overcompensate the other way
1: it's just when when people have an idea like a a, you know a a philosophical idea Mm. and then they fit a cartoon around it Mm. And, and you can tell when some people you can really tell when some people just want to talk about a philosophical point and then they'll stick a, a, a you know a, a cartoon around it, or they'll stick an animation around it, or a short film, or something like that. And it's it's yeah, it's 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 difficult, you know, yeah. to to kind of. Evo- <laughs> Sorry, um, there's a, there's a, there's a murder taking place in the room <laughs> that I'm in. Um, obviously, it's Christmas. We're in a family family environment. We're in the family home. You can hear them screaming in the background. Tensions are high. Tensions, tensions are high. Uh, one of the kids has probably found a toy or something. But yeah, obviously some some academics do like to take. Uh, their own want to make a point about you know a philosophy or something like that, and then they'll stick an animation or a cartoon around it, uh, and they'll spend the time talking about the you know the the philosophy and 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 kind of ignore the cartoon and 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 stuff. But you know what Jane Alberto Bendazzi did was what well, as you say Ben it was plain it was plain talking stuff. Uh, he got there nice nice and early as well in the career. He really influenced a lot of people. Um, his writing for me is. Is is really up there? It's clear, it's concise, it's precise, uh, it's well researched, um, and he's. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him. I met him a, a couple of times. I met him at um, Padova, um, at an animation conference. I don't know if I actually, I may well have said this at the on the podcast in the in the past, but um, he gave what I think was one of the shortest. Uh, presentations I've ever seen at an academic conference, <laughs> um, but you know, he's, he's Gian, Alberto, Gian, Gian Alberto Bendazzi is a rock star who I can't say his name, obviously, of, of, of animation academics. So he was he was kind of forgiven for it, but um, his point was that he was going to reveal the earliest piece of abstract animation, and everyone was like, "Wow, this is exciting!" And so he he played. Um, uh, uh, emil emil calls um and there's a bit where they're in the cinema you might you might recognize this when they're in the cinema and on the screen is basically a swirly line and uh he gets up he plays he says play the film he played it and he went there it is there it is the first bit of abstract animation and he might as well have dropped the mic and gone, yeah, Bendatsy <laughs> out. So, you know, like, See you late, suckers. Uh and it was like that was it. It was it was like one of the shortest things. I was thinking, you know, if I had a if I had a library of books like him and if I'd delivered papers like him, you're allowed to stand up and say, This is it, plain and simple. You can talk your way around the philosophers all day long if you want. But this is this is the information you need if you need it. Here it is. Here you go. Mm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was such a such a nice man as well. So um, yeah, it, uh, he he was uh, he was the timekeeper on, on my talk as well. Um, and uh, there was a there's a typo on my name on the uh, in the brochure, <laughs> and it it was in Italy, and I forgot to put the n on the end of Henderson. So I was yeah. Stephen Henderson, so, so I, was, I was announced up by him, by uh, to Stephen Henderson. So. <laughs> so I like that; it's quite
0: European. It I is. Think it, it fits
1: the vibe. Yeah, <laughs> which is quite nice. Um, but yeah, we we spoke afterwards, um, and now uh, certain academics still call me Stephen Henderson, so, which is quite nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's it, he will be missed. Uh, his books. Uh, you know remain, and if you want to get you know straightforward information about animation from people who absolutely adore the craft um, then then he he's he's the person to go to and he was obviously he was something as a crusader as well wasn 't he Ben? He, he he was the person who really pushed for um uh, the you know the reveal that the first animated feature film was made in 1917 um, with uh, and he made uh, you know big connections with um, Quirino Cristiano, um, the the guy who who, who did um, uh, the Apostle, the the first animated feature film in 1917. I think I said, um, and he wrote books about that, and I think he he personally knew. Um, Quirino Cristiano as well wrote to him when he was a you know a, a, a in his in his early years as a as an animation academic as well um, and uh, yeah really made a point of of, of uh, correcting the history books as well because it's you know we, we we know this pain Ben you know animation people say oh Steamboat Willie was the first ever animation no it wasn't you know it not even close. Yeah. Um, it's uh, and, and it's people like uh, Gian Alberto, B- Alberto Bendazzi who, uh, who really kind of uh, set the record straight and, uh, you know, we're all the richer to have had him and his work uh, and it makes it all the sadder that he's now left us, but he's got such a uh, marvellous legacy to leave behind.
0: Yeah. Got some fan mail, sort of. Not really... I don't know if you clocked this. On the last episode of the Squiggly Animation podcast, we got a bit of fan mail. Um, this was a bit of a head scratcher, but, um, it was, it was delivered to us via the comment section of the SoundCloud stream, Ooh. which is sort of the main entry point of the, um, the Squiggly podcast. And then it gets distributed to various other platforms. But yeah, SoundCloud is what we kind of put it up to. And you can directly comment on the stream. At certain points, which I don't think you can do on Spotify or anywhere else, mm. so uh, a little interactive tidbit for anyone who wants to do that. Usually, it's people going, "I can't hear what that person is saying because <laughs> the Zoom audio goes a bit weird." Um, so, as you recall, we interviewed uh, Mikey Please and Dan Ujari for their film "Robin Robin," local stop motion film. Everyone enjoyed it. So, yeah, we had a a, a comment on this, and I I'm, I'm baffled by this. Why was Squiggly not interested in interviewing us about STRIKE? Three question marks. We made a stop-motion feature and no one cared? Three more question marks. And then he's written ODD in all caps, which took me a while because I thought that was an acronym. But I think what he's just saying is ODD! Uh, This gentleman, I believe, is Trevor Hardy, the director of the film Strike, who is upset with us because we have not interviewed him about the film Strike, which was, as I recall, a pretty low-budget independent stop-motion feature for young audiences about uh, animals playing football. Um, Here's the thing. We interviewed him. (laughs) The week the film came out, and we were like, I don't know how many other people did, but we definitely did. Like, even if you're like, you're like upset that the world is ignoring you and not giving your films enough, I what? <laughs> I don't know. I just found that interesting.
1: <laughs> wow. Maybe you want it to be on the podcast. I don't know. Maybe he thinks um, a, an, a, 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 an interview has to be audio.
0: Here's the thing. I also do find that people do kind of... I had a weird little exchange a couple of weeks ago, and we've we've had this type of thing happen, of, you know, throughout the years doing this. We are a platform for pretty much anyone we want on Squiggly. Like, if we like the films, or even if we don't necessarily like the films, but we recognize that other people might... Yeah. You know, um, we'll give it a platform. There are actually a lot of factors that go into what we kind of pick to put up. Yeah. And one was it was like a pitch to interview people who had just started a new studio, you know, talk about their careers thus far. And they've all kind of come onto to uh, this new venture from different rungs of, I guess, American feature film production, respectable enough features, that kind of thing. I I didn't really see the sort of point of doing an interview with them about the stuff they had done before with other studios, if they're starting a new studio. But I said, hey, look, I think it's great. Sounds like a great group of people. You know, whatever projects you have on the go, when they come out, send them our way. We love to champion new studios. It was a very kind of uh, woman-heavy team. I think that's good as well, because I think we're finally kind of making proper strides on that front. But also, like, I don't think
1: that in and of itself is a, is a story. Yeah. Anyone can go a company's house and set up an animation studio and, yeah, that's it.
0: You know, it's not like, you know, we don't, you have to make something for us to care at all. But I did sort of counter the things like, okay, well, probably don't have time to do an interview. It's Christmas. We've got a million and one things and all of us are busy. But, you know, if you can send me a press release kind of detailing this stuff, who the people are. Yeah, You know, that's the kind of stuff that goes up in our business news quite regularly. And I just got this very kind of catty thing back of, like, no, it's an interview or nothing. <laughs> and then, <laughs> all right, bye. Yeah. Merry Christmas. And that's, this isn't from the studio, but this is from the, the press person that's been hired by the studio to, like, uh-huh. cultivate good press relations. And so... I I don't think that's a really good approach personally. I feel like press people I don't I don't want them to kiss my ass. I don't need that, but like yeah. People who I think kind of they recognize, okay, this isn't for you, maybe this other thing will be later. Yeah, exactly. There's a guy who emails me like every other day and one in 11 things he sends me is applicable to our remit. And he knows that, but he keeps emailing me anyway just in case because I think, you know, he doesn't really 100% know what our remit is at this point but he's got a job to do and yeah we're on a list and that's fine you know that's that's what we're here for so yeah i was i was all for giving that studio a bit of a signal boost i'll keep an eye on them see what they come up with maybe but i i, I wonder now if they produce something interesting and they have the same press person and i come back because oh do you want to do an interview and i was like no <laughs>
1: <laughs> you had your charts <laughs> squiggly and deep <laughs> you should have interviewed us when we were ordering the stationery <laughs> when we were getting the keys cut for the office you should have interviewed us then you <laughs> bastards
0: <laughs> anyhow if you want to learn about strike by trevor hardy uh go to uk slash trevor-hardy-strike and you can see a quite lengthy interview with him you know um not sure why it got eternal sunshine out of his head, but uh, there you go. You're doing good work. What else is going on? Let's do another interview, shall we? Yeah. Hopefully, they won't forget about this one. So, on Christmas Day, uh, we have a couple of animated specials uh, made in the UK. Well, made sort of everywhere because of the sort of current state of things, but, um, you know, with a kind of UK base, uh, essentially. So, we have the new Magic Light production called Superworm. Mm. Which uh, is another adaptation As Magic Light often do Of Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler Their picture books Which are of course hugely hugely popular And their relationship with Magic Light Goes back a very long way I think probably It's got to be like 10
1: years right The uh, uh If you google it it will surprise you oh, 10 years maybe Yeah,
0: uh, about, yeah. Um, ooh, about 12 years December 12 years, 2009 yeah. And so, of course, they've done a whole bunch of films with them, various adaptations, Room on the Broomzog, Stickman, not always Julie Donaldson, sometimes they did the Roald doll one year. Mm. But yeah, this one is *Superworm*. And, well, I mean, there isn't really a ton to say in terms of setting it up. It's an adaptation of a storybook about a worm who is very, very long and uh, can do all sorts of wonderful things, can perform feats of super wormy strength. Saves the day regularly. He's kind of a, a local hero among the uh, insects and other various garden life that uh, he lives among the community he's a part of. And their community is invaded by a lizard wizard hmm with a, a, a mate who's a crow. And um, <laughs> the crow, I think, is Rob Brydon, who I'm pretty sure has been in every one of their films at this point. Certainly a lot of them. Yeah and uh yeah the rest of the cast was Olivia Colman national treasure narrating uh who to me will always be sophie and peep show yeah yeah <laughs> i actually met olivia colman once many many years ago at um a recording of a radio show she was in called uh, the mitchell and webb sound it was like his peep show had like just sort of started on tv and that was kind of how i knew most of the people in the show I just remember finding her really sort of sweet. I was like, oh, it's so nice that you're on the radio and on TV. Well done, you. (laughs) Oscar winner. Yeah. During the intermission, I was chatting to a guy at the bar who, like, I recognized him. I was like, where do I know that guy from? And so I started chatting to him because this is what I do when I recognize people. I assume I just know them. <laughs> I don't think, oh, I might know this person from something and they don't know me at all. But he, he saw that I recognized him and struck up a conversation. So we're sort of chatting just small talk. And in my head, I'm like, who, do, who is this guy? Why do I know him? Anyway, about five minutes into the conversation because it took a while to get our beers. I realized, oh, I know him. He's super hands. <laughs> 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 i like, you know what, mate? I've just realised where I recognise you from. <laughs> and I've been talking to you like I know you for the last five minutes. But I think you're really funny in the show, but I'm going to let you go. <laughs> because you're probably wondering why I won't shut up. He <laughs> was very polite.
1: Got a beer out of it as well, which is pretty, pretty good. But yeah, these are these, uh, plenty of celebrity guests in these, in these kind of magic light shorts, isn't there? This, uh, Matt Smith as well, I think, um, it voices the worm. It's weird, isn't it? These these magic light ones. I mean, the only kind of slight criticism I have for these otherwise amazing anime. I'm not going to criticize the animation. I'm not going to criticize the design, the animation, any of that sort of stuff. But every year, it's like you know Olivia Coleman, Rob Brydon, Matt... You know all these sort of big sort of superstar names, and they get like one line, two lines, three lines. And I'm not no. expecting them to read the phone book out or any of that sort of stuff. I know it's it's kids stuff, but. The, you always hear when people say, "Oh well, I had to do it because my kids." Oh, my kids! They, mm. they, they made me do. You know, they made me do it. It's like the animation producers have gone, "Yes, yeah, <laughs> right." Like, Who's got kids? Who's got nieces and nephews? Who's gonna be like, "Let's let's get them to read out three words, and we'll, we'll be able to plaster that all over the radio times that it stars Olivia Coleman, or it stars, mm. you know, uh, or you know, this, that, and the other."
0: One thing that they kind of mention in the interview is like the, the, how strict they have to be when it comes to adapting these stories and expanding on them Mm. is that the text has to be pretty much untouched. The, you know, for the actual dialogue and the text from the storybook, they can't re, or they try not to expand that. Mm. So that's why I think the characters speak so infrequently because if you are to read these books aloud, you're probably going to be done in like two or three minutes.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: But they need, you know, they got to fill half an hour, you know, to find a way to do that. You're dealing with mostly sort of physical action, you know, uh, physical comedy, things that kind of, and this is the thing that, you know, maybe I don't think it's too disruptive, but it does stand out is it, because of course it's all written as rhyme, like that sort of poetry verse narration in the writing. And so what will occasionally happen is someone will say something and then like 30 seconds later they'll say the next line of the rhyme. So in that respect it does disrupt it. But I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't ruin Christmas. <laughs> it's just an observation.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the animation in it is as ever superb. Um, some absolute beautiful work. I think this year was uh, the first year put together by Blue Zoo. Uh, who did the, 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 the animation services on this one. Uh, so it's nice to see a UK studio getting involved in, uh, in these UK TV specials. Yeah.
0: Cool. So we have an interview with the directors, Sarah Scrimger and Jack Hammond. Shall we hear what they have to say about making Superworm?
1: Let's listen.
0: To start, it would be great to learn a bit more about you both and your respective backgrounds and what kind of ultimately led you to animation
7: yeah sure. um well i I actually out of high school I, I studied animation, so i got I got on that bandwagon uh, straight off the bat. Um, and i these magic light shows've actually you know have have been most I've worked on these sort of most of my career. Um, I started on uh, Stickman in 2014, 2015, as a, um, just as a character modeling artist and, uh, and compositing artist. And then um, through all the different projects, I kind of climbed my way up um, eventually to compositing supervisor on, um, on Revolting Rhymes uh, and sort of uh, kept that position until, uh, until all the way up to Zog. Um, and then on Snail and the Whale, I became the art director on that. And um and then on Superworm, uh yeah, this is this is our first directing gig. Um obviously as a as a team, but also as individuals. Uh this is the first time we're we're um we're directing. And yeah, that's kind of been my sort of traject trajectory. What's the top word?
8: Uh so for me it's uh similar. I I started uh at Triggerfish Animation Studios, that was my first proper proper job. Um I I'd done a bunch of illustrations, small little animation jobs before that. But uh, my first industry job was on Zambezia, which was their first feature film It was the first, one of the first big feature animation features in South Africa. Uh and at the time, domestically, it was like really successful. So that was quite exciting because it was at the start of an industry almost. Um, and then followed that up with their second movie, Kumba, and then um I did a bit of uh work in uh advertising. Uh, you know, animation animation for for commercials and uh, short-form stuff and then some uh, uh, TV series stuff at another studio and then eventually made my way back onto the uh, Magic form. So my first one was uh, Highway Rats and then it was Revolting Rhymes and then all the way up until Zog where I got my first uh, animation supervisor, animation director gig Um, and then Zag and Flying Doctors, which is second time in that role, and then uh, straight on to uh uh superworm as director. I animated a couple of shots on, on Sound of the Well, but uh yeah, Superworm is the first on that the whole, you know, did the whole duration as a director, which is pretty exciting.
0: Was directing then something that was on both of your radars as far as what you wanted to end up doing?
8: Definitely.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I think um I think it was, it was certainly something that we both sort of had ambitions for. And, um, and you know, the way it sort of it came about, we were, um, we were on a trip with sort of like a team trip, um, post snail and the whale, um, at the, after the completion of that, we went away with some of the team members and, um, Michael and Martin Pope, who obviously are the producers at, um, at magic light were, were on that trip and, uh, and it was a very sort of relaxed environment you know everyone was sort of post snail and the whales so All the stress was over and everyone was kind of just relishing in the in the completion of that and um and that's where we got asked to direct superworm and it was it was i mean it was an amazing surprise It came completely out of the blue um and we're in sort of like you know the south african bush vault. so it was it was quite a setting to uh, to receive this mood. Like,
8: we were sitting by the pool like in board shorts and like the vest you know <laughs> that we over and have this chat with uh, Michael and Martin which is yeah it's quite a surprise nice.
7: um, but it was, it, was, it was great for us you know we um, we've obviously worked on a few of these shows together but not that closely because we come we have uh, different backgrounds and different sort of um, strengths uh, within the pipeline um, but we've always wanted to make something together we've always sort of you know chatted about collaborating and, and, and doing something together so you know the fact that they kind of asked us both, for this project was just such a, such a cool, um, such a cool surprise. And, and it was was super exciting.
0: Did they have a kind of internal logic then as far as seeing something in you both and figuring you'd work well together? It's it's,
8: it's interesting. I don't know because me and Sarah actually have been, had been coming up with sort of our own original concepts together and pitching those, but I don't think we ever pitched any of the stuff that we had worked on together directly to them. But I think maybe it, it might have filtered up to them. Um, I think our work as uh, supervisors probably stood out to them. That's probably where they saw us actually working. So I'm, I'm not actually sure. It's, uh, it's, it, yeah. it, maybe It was a bit of a leap. But um, I certainly me and Sarah had been working a lot of stuff that we'd been pitching at Annecy. And and I guess I pitched my own project to Magic Light and, and Sarah has, had her own stuff. So it might yeah. have just filtered up that way.
7: We also, you know, we also have sort of complementary um, uh, strengths. So um, it, was, it made a good sort of partnership, the two of us, um, in terms of uh, Yak's very kind of uh, st- uh, strong background in animation and mine sort of uh, on the asset pipeline, uh, lighting, compositing. And so we were, we were really able to kind of, um, uh, yeah, bring sort of bring a lot to the party from from all angles. So, yeah.
0: I'm sort of interested in the uh, relationship then with Magic Light and Triggerfish, and what the nature of that actually is. Were you more involved with Triggerfish to begin with, or were you always part of like the Magic Light side of things?
7: Um, I think it's, it it differs for each of us slightly, but um, but uh, I'd say we were sort of more involved with Triggerfish to begin with. Um, but at least in my um, for me, I was uh, I was sort of brought on for. The magic light projects. So I never worked um, sort of in any other capacity or on any other shows at Triggerfish. I always worked on the magic light shows, and I was sort of contracted um, uh, uh, per project. Um, Yak, on the other hand, I mean, Yak, you can answer this, but he had a he has a longer history with Triggerfish. Obviously, working on their feature phones. Um, Yak.
8: Yeah, yeah I, I think I mean, certainly. I mean, that's where uh, Michael and Martin found us because uh, we've been working at Triggerfish and have a history with them and. Um, but but in terms of how it works, it's definitely a partnership. But you know, the a production company comes on on board um, to service these these projects and to uh, create them. So so all of the actual production work, or well, most of it, you know, actually gets done at these uh, studios. And so Trickfish is the first uh, studio that we worked at that had picked these up. And then I worked at Giants uh, for a year on flying Doctors, and now we're working with uh, Blue Zoo. And they're already on to the next one. Um, But so we we did Superworm for first time with with New Zoo uh, as well. So they sort of come on as a sort of a service in a service capacity, but it's it's a partnership, you know, between us as directors, the studio, and Magic Light as the the sort of parents.
7: We're kind of chasing the projects, I guess. You know, we're kind of uh, we're kind of uh, following the project and uh, stalking Magic Light a bit, (laughs) you could say.
0: When it comes to Blue Zoo being involved, so in that sense, are you directing that crew, like the animators within them, or are they? Are you kind of interacting mainly with the sort of higher ups, if that makes sense?
8: We're we're working pretty much directly with the team. We're kind of basically in the trenches with everyone. We get pretty hands-on. Um, I guess that might just be a habit of ours because we're used to being so hands-on because we've come up through the project. So. We get pretty involved, but, but we're there day to day with the studio. And we're interacting with each department, um, and then so we're working together with Magic Light in terms of the notes and the you know the, the sort of um, creative aspect, and and then working with Blue with the actual production aspect of that and, and implementing it. So um, it's pretty much pretty much in there with the team.
0: Okay. When it comes to uh, the sort of tradition that Magic Light have of adapting. Uh, mainly it seems Julia's work and Alex's work for the most part. And I'm sort of interested in what determines which one is going to be adapted which year. And if you had any kind of input into that or were aware of the process, are they planned years in advance or is it based on like book sales?
7: I think it mostly comes down to what's going to make uh, a good film. And so, you know, some of the stories, I mean, a lot of the stories, obviously, there is a sort of uh, a lot of them obviously get uh, adapted and, and expanded upon. Um, you know, the books take seven to 10 minutes to read from back to front. So, you know, to try and make that into a, a half hour special, um, it, it sort of needs some uh, further interpretation and, and adaption. Um, in terms of what books get chosen, um, you know, that happens sort of internally at Magic Lights. Um Sort of treatments are written for all the books, and that's kind of the stage where you figure out if this is going to make a uh, you know make a good film and, and actually make a, a, a half hour special. In terms of how far in advance they're uh, they're decided upon, but you know I think it it, it changes from case to case. For example, um, The Snail and the whale, which was done in 2019, um, was something that Max Lang, one of the directors on that. Had wanted to do for years and years. So his first film was uh, *The Gruffalo*, which was, I think, the first one that *Magic Light* um, adapted. And uh, and from *The Gruffalo*, since *The Gruffalo*, he's been, you know, he's he's kind of had his eyes on *Snail and the Whale. And so. I don't know what that sort of time period was. It was probably, I think about seven, eight years. I think he was constantly thinking of that and, and, you know, writing a treatment for that. And so that had a lot of kind of, you know, thoughts and development before actually going into production on, I think um, some of the more recent ones uh, have been written fairly recently. And so um, uh, they might not have been on the list for adaption a few years ago, but once we read the book, or once sorry, Magic Light read the book, realised what a good films could make, uh, uh, and so sort of pushed that to the front of the queue. So I think it really depends on on which books make are going to make uh, uh, good films.
0: That skill, I guess, of taking the source material and and expanding on it, and really sort of building more of a sort of immersive animated world, uh, which I imagine is quite challenging. By the time it comes to actually directing the animation. How locked in is everything? Is it very kind of rigidly predetermined or is there any kind of room for any flourishes or experimentation?
8: It's, I think there's plenty, plenty of room throughout the, throughout the show. You know, we're still actually making decisions right up until the end of animation in terms of performances, you know, and then right until the end of lighting in terms of mood and so on. But um, obviously what we try to do is we get an animatic lock so that we know what the film is in animatic form. Uh, there's still a lot of decisions that keep happening throughout the process. I think uh, obviously the the uh, adaptation, you know, the sort of screenplay that Max and Suzanne did for Super War, we try to be pretty faithful to that. But it's a jumping off point because, you know, it's two different formats. It's like uh, literary and then visual. So then you have to like make it work and the play as a film in, in the animatic. So a lot of inventing and sort of adaptation happens there as well and then we do try and encourage the artists to bring their ideas. Um, but I, I would say the animatic's getting pretty close to what the film is. Um, and then you can start, you know, Sarah was doing a lot of the, the sort of scratch music and so on, laying that in so that that can inform um, how we brief the, the composer and that sort of thing. And, um, but we do try to encourage, like, all the artists to, like, sort of come with the idea because you'll have something that, that no one's thought about and just adds like an extra bit of humor or like an extra sort of pathos or something, you know, in terms of uh, each shot, you know, the, the performances uh, and how that sort of attracts in the rest of the story. So um, short answer is fairly locked, but there's there's plenty of room for for experimentation playing around.
0: Would there be any like examples with this, um, with Superworm where that might've been the case, like things kind of thought more on the fly?
8: Yeah, I think there was uh, this, quite a lot of stuff i mean there's a lot of the jokes that that sort of got kind of pushed and, and amped up throughout the show and i think we're also like uh even inside previous we're figuring out because that's when you sort of figure about the cameras and that sort of thing um and so for example there's sort of a, a gag that came in bit sort of a spoiler alert so switch off now if you are a <laughs> fan seeker. but right towards the end the uh the pro gets uh, shot off like a slingshot and uh, that whole setup was kind of like basically pretty loose until we got there. And so what the previous artist did is he really pushed the, you know, the, the lensing so that you get this like very wide angle, which then pushes the, the human in terms of when the character gets shot off and goes big and to very small. And so those sorts of tweaks definitely, uh, um, you know, find their, you know, find their way into the, the film as you go. Are there any other cool examples, Sarah, that we, uh,
7: well, I guess it's, it's quite interesting because obviously, you know, we are um, locked in in terms of uh, dialogue The and, you know, the sort of the book itself, we, we, we don't add, except for one or two sort of minor examples, we don't change the dialogue or the sort of uh, uh, narration at all. Um, and so every, all the kind of um, uh, extra little things that we do um, would be sort of like more performance-based um, and, you uh, that that doesn't change the story, but it, like yeah was kind of saying, just kind of elevates it. And um, one of the biggest differences uh, from uh, compared to the book in in, in the uh, film adaptation is sort of the introduction of Butterfly as as one of the main characters. Um, in the book, we don't have her, but in the in the story, uh, we felt like well, Max Max and Suzanne who wrote her in really felt like we just needed someone. Um, Else in the story who's able to um, help move the story along uh, with Superworm. He actually, you know, he gets he gets abducted and, and disappears for a while. And so um, that's not uh that's that's not very helpful if he's your main character. Um but we also just felt like we needed uh we needed he he needed uh, someone to sort of humble him a bit. Um and uh and so butterfly, it's an amazing character, um, just yeah, was the was the answer to that. Um, and the two of them have a very sort of tender friendship that really uh, makes the whole story quite heartfelt and, mm. and moving. See, as far as the
0: production itself, circumstances being what they are, was it a remote crew for the most part, or were people in-house at all?
7: It was almost entirely done remotely. Um, so uh, Yakna are based in, in Cape Town, South Africa, um, and obviously, you know, we sort of started this project... At the break of a global pandemic. So um, going into it, you know, we we expected that we'd be sort of more in-house with the team, but um, you know, the situation obviously wouldn't allow that. Um, And so not only were we sort of working from um, Cape Town, but the entire studio in London, um, all the artists were also working remotely. And so we had artists uh, mostly in London, but all over Europe our art director was in Montreal, we were in Cape Town, so it was really uh, you know um, quite a challenge to begin with but um, but you know I must say I think we we kind of we got a, a decent rhythm going. Um, Blue Zoo really uh, sort of created this online environment that um, that felt super conducive to creative collaboration and um, and yeah we made it work in the end. it was a challenge, but uh, but we made it work.
0: When it came to the casting, then do you have any hand in that, as far as putting people forward, or is it more of a kind of call that the producers do?
8: We we uh we got to take part in that uh, magic lot of great like that involving us at every single step of the process, and especially for us, you know, coming from our very specific roles, it's, it's that's like one of the most fun parts is to get to take a look at the casting or the music and that sort of thing and give on that. So, um, we uh. We worked an amazing costume director, and, and she basically uh put forward it's like ridiculous names. The, the name that they're putting to us, it's like A-list actors you know. <laughs> and uh, and then we get to kind of pick our top three, and then we start whittling down, we have the conversation about like what who the character is and how does that voice fit according to that character. And uh um, and then obviously we you know, a couple of times we had like our, our topics, and then those didn't work out, and you have to sort of think of like, okay. And you, you kind of get very set on that. You fall, kind of fall in love with that person as that, you know, for that role. Um, but there's been a couple of times that uh, we sort of got surprised with, with uh, um, you know, people that actually like, you know, we don't actually you know, one of the actors specifically for, for Wizard Lizard, I wasn't personally very familiar with him. He's, I think he does a lot of theatre. Um, and uh, he just like turned out to be amazing. I can't imagine him, you know, us using someone else for that role now. Um, and obviously, the, the people that gravitated to first are sort of the names that you know. Um, so anyway, it's, it's super fun because you get to sort of talk through uh, a lot of stuff on YouTube and listen to their voice and then sort of imagine how that that works for for the character. Um,
7: yeah, yeah, but the, the quality of the cast is, and un- like we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe the names that were sort of being put forward to us, and, and the fact that we sort of you know got the opportunity to work with these these incredibly talented people was it was such a dream come true. And um, yeah, such a, such a cool part of the process.
0: Something you mentioned earlier about the work you'd done together, like pitching ideas and projects. Is that something that is kind of invited among the staff to kind of uh, submit ideas for possible projects?
7: Not um, well, you know. Not not specifically with with Magic Light. I think Yak and I, um, you know, we we try and go to Annecy every year, and that's um, uh, such a great place to sort of network and, and meet new people and pitch ideas, and and so and so we try and go uh, with something each year, um, and you know, to sort of test the waters with, and um, and so not with Magic Light directly. I think. You know, I, I don't know if, if, if you know, Yak, um, if that's something that they're open to in, in terms of just like, you know, uh, uh, cold pitching. But, um, but for us, it was more just about um, developing something together, pitching it to uh, uh, somebody uh, who would be interested in sort of collaboration, somebody that we kind of admired or a studio that would, we would have loved to have worked with or whatever the case is. Um, but it was sort of uh, more done independently of, of Magic Light and Triggerfish.
8: Because I guess we've got a direct link to Magic Light, uh, and we had a direct link to the so um, it's hard to know if we could have approached Magic Light with a, you know just a cold approach and started pitching an idea if we hadn't known them. Uh, but I I have actually pitched uh, sort of a uh, preschool series idea to them, um, and it's something we we've, we've had a couple of conversations about, and they're pretty open to that. We've definitely pitched uh, some things to Trickfish when we were there, and so I guess. Um, uh, proximity kind of helps. You know, I guess you're you're pitching it to people you know. Um we might eventually take some ideas to Blue Zoo because we've worked with them now and they're a great studio and um and they're they're pretty exceptional at, at television as well. So if you've if you've got like a TV series, I think it's uh, um I'd love to pitch that to them. But it's I guess Sarah and I, I guess we just kind of want to make stuff. And so probably the first time that we kind of were roughing and and, and realized that we actually worked quite well together was I think it was just like a random like Google Chat like group with some friends, and then somehow something came up. Like someone said a word, that then we started riffing. And then on the side, me and Sarah were, like riffing this idea while the rest of the people were trying to have a chat, you know. <laughs> um, and then we went and actually turned that into like a uh, into like a um, a pitch deck, and and it's quite a lot of fun to come up with that sort of thing. And then um, the amazing thing is uh, you take it to and people actually interested in making it, you know, or you whatever, you know, kid uh, screen or whatever. Um, so it's definitely something that we've sort of got going on, on the side. Uh, it's a nice way to just stay inspired, to like have your little side projects and little pitch bibles, you know.
0: Do you anticipate working together again as directors down the line?
8: Not at all. I can't work with Sarah again. It's the worst, yeah. honestly,
7: has been the worst, the worst. experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, definitely. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Is there stuff on the horizon at the moment or is that all kind of hush-hush?
7: Um, the, not
8: the immediate horizon, We're basically all I'm thinking about now is like chilling. So it's, uh, it's been like two hard years of like nonstop work without a holiday. So I, I'm just chilling very hard for December, but we're, we're obviously thinking about the next thing and, and uh, kind of putting things together and, and riffing a bit on that, but uh, mm-hmm. nothing
0: concrete yet. When yeah. did Superworm wrap? is it quite recent
7: yeah it wrapped um i think the official wrap uh was yeah it was, it was right up until the wire but it was um sort of mid-november we kind of delivered the final uh the final uh, uh lit and, and comp shots um but we finished up the grade uh, yeah around mid-november um and so yeah it was, it's still quite fresh we still have a bit of um, uh, so we need to, yeah, like Jack said, take a, take a month to just sort of decompress and, and, and then, yeah, probably on to the next thing.
0: And that was Sarah Scrimger and Jack Hammond, the directors of Superworm, which will be on TV on BBC one Christmas day, 2.30 PM. And, uh, I'm sure on the iPlayer for a little while after that, it's usually a month. So, isn't it? Oh, speaking of iPlayer, did you notice that the
1: secrets of British animation was repeated the other day? I did. Yes, it's always nice when when that gets repeated, and we get little text messages through saying, "I've seen you on the telly." I, mean, <laughs> I always I always get those, and I'm like, "Oh, it's either that tipping point episode I was on of Secrets of British Animation." There's <laughs> but yeah, nice to have that back on then. If anyone's not seen that, then uh, yeah, go onto iPlayer and search for it. There's some uh, fantastic. Uh, animation uh, commentators uh, talking through the, the the secrets of British animation. And then you and I get uh, about 15 seconds, which uh, is more than enough for anyone. <laughs> Anyone's. Uh...
0: Well, it's like seasoning, isn't it? We're sprinkled in.
1: We are. We are indeed.
0: <laughs> a <bit> of spice. <laughs> We also kind of had a bit of a consultancy part to play on this because we were both approached, I think on the same day, but like across the country yeah. for like general advice on good sort of case studies and i think they picked the one that we both brought up yes i think everyone has their own ideas of you know what the roster should be of british animation but there's only so much you can fit into an hour i think they should have talked to robert morgan personally Mm. a few others i think there are a couple of other people that maybe shouldn't be on it (laughs) that maybe may have been friends of other consultants but who am i to you know tell them their business uh, it's a fine documentary all around. Well, as it's the holiday season and we like to champion new work, have you seen this
1: wonderful new show that's come out uh, called Santa Inc.? I have not seen Santa Inc., Ben. Tell me all about Santa Inc. <laughs> are, are you aware of it? I'm not. No, I'm not aware of it. Not at all? No. I think
0: I- we're going to have to do a, a, a Christmas trailer watch. Ooh, yes, please. I'm going to pop over a link. For you now, when you uh, when you click this link, you'll be flagged with a message: "This video may be inappropriate for some users." So if you have delicate sensibilities, Steve,
1: okay, avert your eyes and ears. Okay, right. I'm gonna press play now.
4: When you're a kid, there's only one day a year more special than any other day, and that day is Christmas. It's a little elf, and we are the magic behind that day. So let's get these fucking kids some fucking presents!
1: Whoa! Swimming! Hello. May I present the hardest working man in snowbiz? Snowbiz, Ben. Jolly, yep. Our own
4: Santa Claus! Hey, hey,
3: Merry Christmas. Whoa! You're on my naughty...
1: Oh my god, list. we've just seen some elf tits.
6: More American kids believe in you than they do in vaccines or the
4: holocaust.
3: That's great! I mean, disheartening for America, but great. Love. Well, they made
1: a holocaust joke. This gets better. Topical, topical humor.
0: <laughs>
3: Have you decided who will succeed you with Santa Claus? Subtext, Santa's old and knocking on death's door?
1: Fuck you! Oh, Santa the swore. The position of Santa has mostly been a white man's game.
4: Exactly, it's fucking crazy. Things have gotta change. My I
1: think the the elf should say fuck more. If I die, get I, rid of my Yeah, blood. I mean she's only said it twelve times in this trailer. The
4: next Santa. If this is your dream, you have to at least make your case, bitch. You gotta um, get intimate with that jolly bitch, bitch. Yep. I know I you're keep right, saying bitch. Do you really have to yep. call me bitch every time you say something? Yes, bitch! Because it's empowering to call you bitch, bitch. <laughs>
1: Oh look, there you go, flashing again. Big names: Sarah Silverman, Seth Rogen.
4: Others.
0: Wow, so that uh, that is streaming on HBO Max. There you go. I'm not sure where it can be found in the UK, but I doubt there'll be a, many people rushing to check it out. This is rated 4% on Rotten Tomatoes.
3: Ooh. Oof.
0: I think it's generally considered to be one of the biggest disasters in like animated series history. It's a series it's yeah apparently it's like eight episodes. Now you wouldn't have thought that wow. could stretch to more than 20 minutes that premise. I didn't think it could stretch throughout the trailer there. I don't <laughs> know about you but like... I will edit the trailer down in the in the podcast because that was yeah that was that was rough to get through.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of me just being dumbfounded. There wasn't much reaction from me. It was more like my face. <laughs> I was sh- shocked to your core, I'm sure, by just how
0: transgressive and um, and shocking the language was. and You know, the, the no holds barred. Santa Claus dropping the F-bomb. So this is a project that I think its reputation has sort of preceded it because Seth Rogen, the genius who brought us Sausage Party, and sometimes quite funny films like not super often but once or twice he is at the helm of this uh, this endeavor and earlier this month was pretty nonplussed with how nonplussed the people were in response to this trailer and i think the issue fundamentally was that everyone kind of saw it for what it was as pandering liberal garbage now i'm a liberal Mm. I'm a leftist, liberal, wishy washy, snowflake, archetypical The problem with this is it sucks. <laughs> Those <laughs> jokes were terrible. Like it, it the joke is literally that it's just an elf saying fuck every five seconds, basically, right? Like Yeah. I'm gonna go back to another little bit here where it's um So it's when the sage elf gets blown away by a gust of wind for no particular reason. That, I I guess that's a joke. Oh, I guess it's like, oh, he's an elf and he watches porn. Can you imagine what we were smoking when we came up with that? (laughs) And that's something that's kind of leveled against sort of some genuinely quite interesting creative projects of like, oh man, they must have been so high when they came up with that. Seth Rogen, I believe, would have been high when he came up with this because it sucks. Yeah. When you're high and you come up with creative ideas, they're terrible. Like, being high isn't conducive to, like, creativity that's engaging in any way. I had a teacher that really wanted to be, like, cool when I was in university, and he was, like, the teacher that encouraged us all to, like, you know, go home and get stoned and just write down all the crazy stuff that comes into your head kind of thing. So I went home and got stoned, and I stared at a pencil for 25 minutes. <laughs> and then ate loaded potato skins. That was about the, the, the level we're dealing with here. And I, I it's the level of I guess of subversion that has been applied to this. And it's something that I think can you know, you could do this and stretch it out for a few minutes. Yeah. And actually, you know, a Sunny did it, thinking about it. About ten years ago they did a Christmas episode and there's a little two, three minute segment in there that's a kind of pastiche in the way this is of, you know, those old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stop-motion Americana Christmas specials. But it doesn't stretch out over eight episodes. Like, they knew better than that. And, you know, it's not a high point of the of that episode even, but, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of fun to see them all as little stop-motion puppets, but they know what the lifespan for it is, so they tap out at the right moment. Mm. Seth Rogen's response to the uh, criticism in a tweet that is bafflingly still up <laughs> we really pissed off tens of thousands of white supremacists with our new show, Santa Inc., which is now available on HBO Max. Please read the responses to this tweet for confirmation. Yeah, that's an interesting take. Yeah. The the great thing about it like and why I'm, I'm surprised he hasn't deleted it is that little thing at the end where he says please read the responses for confirmation. All the responses are just completely reasonable people, yeah. being completely reasonable about their criticisms and pointing out that maybe this whole thing was a drastic, drastic misfire. Yeah, and that's a shame because you you, you hear that oh there's going to be a new stop motion show. I'm interested, automatically. Let's see what they have to, you know. And not everything's for me. Some stuff I like elements of. There was that show The Shivering Truth. That was pretty interesting. It's kind of off the wall. And, you know, it's hard to watch a lot of in one go. But, you know, you can dip into it. And it's visually very creative and inventive. Uh, there was a show recently that didn't make enough of an impression on me to for me to remember the name. But it was about, like, it was animated dolls. And it was a kind of film noir pastiche show, and I'm like, okay, that's kind of good. There's nothing that's really come out of the American TV landscape that's been like, oh, this is shit hot stop motion. Yeah, like they've nailed it. There is stuff with potential. Certainly, Santa Inc. I don't think has potential to be the um, the American contributor to
1: the zeitgeist of stop motion. Uh, well, I'm glad I'm glad you've enriched my Christmas by showing me that trailer. I mean, what a yeah, what a what a misfire, um, and what a shame. And, and like you say, you know, I'm as as sort of lefty as, as 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 you as well. And this looks like something that you know, it's like all the ingredients are there, but it's like they got yeah, and then they decided just to make something completely different with it, or just they put them all in the wrong order or something. It just it just yeah, yeah, horrific.
0: And I think that a show like this, if it had maybe played both sides a little bit more, as long as there's comedy to be mined from there. And I think that you know animation seems to be doing that a bit better, but this one clearly has not.
1: But it's a shame. It's a shame. It's got the anyway. profile that it has. You know, this is the thing. And now, now uh, things like this will be known as the the kind of lefty animated TV series that didn't get, didn't land. So we won't make any more lefty animated TV series. So those that might have an idea as to you know, like you say, uh, decide to take a shot at both sides and take the mickey out of itself, which is very important in, has always been important in lefty comedy is, you know, um, th- those won't get a shot because people will look at this and go, well, the last one didn't work. So why would the next one? And that's such a shame. I think. Did you see the new South Parks that came out the last few weeks? I've not seen the full episodes. Um, Last few weeks have been a bit more about nappy changes for me, but uh, I've seen seen the trailers and things uh, with a little bit of a a futuristic time-travelling element. So we're finally seeing the the, the main four South Park characters all grown up.
0: I have to say, I didn't go in with high expectations. I was pleasantly surprised with how these came off, I thought that they were they did a kind of nice job, and it felt a bit more like the old days as far as how they took on what was going on in the world mm. and sort of reconfigured it into a funny premise, whereas the last couple of things they'd done, which had been very covid oriented of course, they were just kind of depressing, <laughs> you know. And this has a very, I actually thought, a quite pleasant ending. Like, I mean, for one character, it's not a very pleasant ending. But, like, the sort of, the message at the end was actually kind of touching, in a way. But it also ties in with some of the big comedy concepts and stuff. There's some lovely stuff about NFTs. (laughs) One of the characters, as an adult, is, uh, like, he goes around basically convincing everyone to buy NFTs,
1: and that's how he makes all his money, is destroying people's lives. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, listen, we could do a whole podcast on NFTs. We really... <laughs> yeah.
0: We don't have Matt or Trey up our sleeves, unfortunately, as podcast guests. Maybe one day. One day. Uh, but that was a, a, a slightly glowier animation thing. I thought I may as well mention to Offset's hand to ink. Yeah, I'll, 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 have, to, I'll have to get stuck into that. Uh, In the meantime, of course, we do have a chat with the director of another Christmas special, which uh, I believe is also going to be on at Christmas Day. This is The Abominable Snow Baby, and it's also an adaptation of a Terry Pratchett story. And it was part of a collection of short stories called Santa's Fake Beard or Father Christmas's Fake Beard. So this studio is called Eagle Eye Drama, and they're sort of new to the animation game, and it's kind of interesting. We go into, you know, the the whys and hows of it, but, you know, they're set up mainly as a live-action drama production outfit. And last year they produced their first animation Christmas special called Clown, which was an adaptation of a Quentin Blake story, with Quentin Blake's, you know, blessing, obviously, and his endorsement, as I gather, Uh, After the fact, I I think he was actually quite happy with it, which is something Quentin Blake isn't necessarily known for being when it comes to adaptations of his work. So that's a good sign. Yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere a bit, like I say, mainly because they're not really a studio. Certainly at the time, they weren't known for doing animation. Quite a few people that uh, we know and like were involved in it, and I think that was kind of why it was on our radar. Mm. But also, it was one of the big Channel 4... Projects that was you know touted last year, I imagine it will be repeated at some point this year as well. But they have a new one as well, so they have this new Terry Patchett adaptation, An Abominable Snow Baby. Quite different from the sort of look. I mean, not so much the animation style, but the um, the design style is very much its own thing, and I think more kind of um, in line with the director's artistic approach. It doesn't really look like the book illustrations, which are by a guy called Mark Beach who. They're very Quentin Blakey, interestingly enough. So, uh, yeah, we talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, So, yeah, this one kind of has its own sort of uh, visual identity. Yes, there's something pleasant happening on television at Christmas time,
1: and it's animated. So, why not talk about it, eh? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I I thought it was really nice. I'm interested to hear about the illustration style and the animation style as well, because it kind of struck me a lot of, of Daniel Greaves. I, I mm. felt a, there was a lot of kind of uh, stylings of uh, of Daniel Greaves or, Greaves or even Simon Tofield, yeah. uh, particularly the cat and things. Um, I, I thought there was a lot of that in it. Um, so, obviously, I liked it for those reasons and those reasons. <laughs> if, if only for those reasons, but I loved it for many other reasons as well. It's quite a nice uh, short film.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, it does hold together really well. You know, they are still relatively new to the animation game. You know, obviously they have, you know, very competent animators working on it. But yeah, there's some really interesting stuff here about like just the nature of how to make a kind of film like this remotely of all the, th- of all the sort of circumstances in which to make a film. And I think that it was the circumstances of COVID and everything that kind of helped push them toward animation. Mm. With that came, you know, of course, a lot of challenges as far as corralling a crew and uh, directing them and so yeah i was really interested to hear about that side of things sort of most of all actually because you know i've been canvassing a lot of my friends you know are working it's a mix of remote and in-house stuff and we're still very uncertain you know where this is kind of leading to yeah he had some interesting thoughts on that and uh very nice chap to talk to shall we hear from massimo
1: fanati let's hear from him splendid
0: so, from what I understand, your background is in architecture, and I was sort of curious how that ultimately translated into illustration, comics, animation that kind of thing.
5: yeah well, yes, I did um study architecture at university because um, well I've always dreamed since I was a child to become a cartoonist, an animator, to work with that kind of sort of in, within that kind of industry but you know, you grow up and people tell you, nah, that's not a very good profession. You know, it's very Bohemian. You're not going to pay your bills if you do that. And so uh, becoming an architect felt a little bit more grown up and mature. (laughs) So I I just wanted to stay within at least some sort of creative environment, you know. And and in that respect, studying architecture was quite a good, way to develop, I, I suppose, my creative skills, uh, as in it's still a similar process, you know. The creative process is the same, whether you apply to architecture or to design a chair or to um, directing an animation uh, film or drawing an illustrated book. I think you have constraints, you have a brief, and you have to make the most with that, with your vision. So it's quite a similar process. But I must confess, I always hated architecture. (laughs) (laughs) So when I finished my uh, studies, I I shifted on to furniture design for a few years, which I found more to my liking, and I actually enjoyed it a lot. But I kept doodling and sketching on the side. And at some stage, um, some of my... um, illustrations ended up in the hands of some people that suggested I should actually uh, show it to literary agents or to publishers and that led to my first um, book deal. Uh, So I basically moved from architecture to illustration and then from illustration to animation because my first books were about, um, they were a series of books about a couple of gay penguins in love, (laughs) a bit random, but uh, uh, I was doing all the illustrations uh, with vector-based illustrations. So um, I moved on to Flash, or at least what was called at the time Flash, that we obviously now need to call Animate, which I find is a little silly name for animators. <laughs> I animate with animate. It's just kind a bit silly. But um, anyway, so I, I literally went to a, a bookstore and bought um, Flash for Dummies, one of those manuals. And I just taught myself animation that way. Um, We're talking about, I don't know, um, I think it's about, it's more than 15 years ago now. Just because I wanted to do some, um, you know, extra things with my characters, I wanted to do a very flashy website and so on and so forth. And that led to getting more passionate about animation and and doing more stuff, self-originated things mostly. Then I started working with, TV, uh, doing mostly motion graphics, um, which I quite enjoyed for a while. But then I really needed to expand into something bigger, and so yeah, it's been quite a sort of an organic, slow process. But um, yeah, that's how I, I got to to where I am now. So,
0: and those books, then uh, the Penguins, uh, did you write them as well, or were you working with an author? You wrote them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those
5: were actually books that I wrote and and illustrated. Um, they were sort of, they were, I think that they were totally child safe. And I have a lot of friends who um, have children who grew up with, with these two characters, Gus and Waldo. Mm-hmm. But they were actually meant mostly for an audience that was a bit more grown up, simply because it was... A series of books that talked about relationships about coupledom you know being together yeah. um i uh, the fact that the two penguins were gay were kind of, it was just kind of a random thing simply because um they were sort of semi-autobiographical books and i'm uh, gay so it felt more natural for me to uh, to have two male penguins but it was mostly about relationships and and how popular culture always focuses on the uh, getting together of a couple, you know, Uh, whether it's a film, uh, a book or whatever, uh, you always have the words at the end when they finally get together and you have the kiss. But actually, I think that uh, being together is a very long thing that, you know, the the fun starts there. So why the end? You know, that's Mm -hmm. the beginning for me. So it's actually a series of books that talk about how you stay together, not just how you get together. Um, but anyway, yes, uh, it, it just you know. So it was quite a, a variety of, of readers that I got with my with my books, and uh, and I did uh, five books with these characters, uh, published both in the UK and other countries. Also some um, some other ones in Italy. So. Uh, And then after that, I did uh, a few more books. I did um, a graphic novel, uh, my first graphic novel, three years ago now, um, which was actually already the adaptation of a um, best-selling novel, an Italian novel uh, uh, by an Italian author. Um, and, And that was probably my very first experience of working on somebody else's text and actually not just Having already a script for the for the graphic novel, but actually having to adapt to adapt the, the the text, the original text, into something that could work for a graphic novel, which is definitely something that was uh, then. Uh, it's a skill that I developed then, and I applied it again to the animation that I did this year and last year as well, in a way because last year it was the adaptation of a uh, book by Quentin Blake. And this year, obviously, it was based on a short story by Terry Pratchett. So uh, I find it quite um, exciting, actually, and um, interesting to work on a text that's already there and how to flesh it out and and turn it into something visual. Um, And... It's quite a challenge in a way, uh, and I always try to be as faithful as possible to the original text, but obviously you need to think, you know, it's a different pace when you read and when you watch something, uh, either on TV or on cinema. Um, it's it's uh, obviously you have different type of, um, you know, the story has to be developed in different ways, of course, and but it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting process, actually.
0: So when you were doing the graphic novels and the comics and stuff, so alongside that, you're doing motion graphics, I guess, more on the animation side of things. Yes. At that time, are you kind of hoping that this is going to lead to stuff with more like character story work or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was that something that was um, on Eagle Eye's agenda? Because I got the impression that their remit was more live action drama.
5: Yes, yeah, correct. Actually, no. The, the collaboration with Eagle Eye happened in a very funny way. Um, I know uh, the uh, the company. Uh, I'm, I'm friends with them, so uh, personal friends with the founders of the company. And what happened basically was this. Um, uh, I worked with them in the past individually, and then the three founders got together and, and they set up this company on the, it's actually kind of a spin-off. I don't know if you know the, um, it's a streaming service called uh, Walter Presents that is on Channel 4, and they show um, foreign drama, subtitled. Um, so... Um, they are the ones that brought to uh, the UK um, things like Deutschland83, uh, mm. The Klan um, and many other big, big uh, sort of uh, international series that are actually really, really good. And so they started like that. And then the same people that set up that company, which I met for, decided to move on to uh, production, actually, and not just uh, distribution, so to speak, or streaming. And this meant that they started to um, put together some um, you know, uh, productions to shoot. Uh, the, the first uh, shoots were supposed to happen in 2020, in April and in June. And obviously, after March, uh, they had to put everything on pause. And I knew they were kind of thinking, OK, what now? And I thought, hmm. I think this is the right time for you to try and get a commission on animation because animation doesn't need to have people on a film set and uh you know breathing the same air and um, applying makeup on actors faces or putting costumes and you know or actors kissing on screen you know when when obviously we are forced to be self-distancing from other people so it's it's um it's just the right time to do animation because that's something that in a slightly less uh, pleasant and functioning way, but you can actually do it remotely, and you don't have to be with everybody under one roof. And so it kind of happened that way. So I, I because they knew me and I had been working with them in the past, and, and I did some some motion graphics you know, for programs that they did in the past, so uh, then it was just the right chance to, to get something going. I had a contact to Quentin Blake through a friend of mine in Italy. And so last year, actually on Quentin's Blake Clown, I I I was the executive producer and my friend was the director. And uh but it was just you know um the first experience of this of this scale that we had. And but I think that in that respect the pandemic was yes, uh, had a little bit of a silver lining for us because it was the extreme emergency situation that allowed us to uh, pitch the idea and to get it commissioned and and to even find people that were keen to work on that it was quite a sort of a last minute so to speak uh commission because we got it in july and obviously it had to be ready for christmas so we had five absolutely insane months of of, of work (laughs) Uh, literally working 16 hours a day seven days a week so at the end i was (laughs) uh, absolutely exhausted um and we delivered on the 23rd of december so normally for tv transmission you deliver quite a few weeks in advance that time obviously was again you know 2020 was very very unusual for everybody so um but it was fantastic you know to find people that actually were keen to work on this project uh, a because of quentin blake but b also because the emergency situation i think that made people just keen to just do anything and so so that's how basically it all started but yes so it's it, eagle Eye drama now keeps doing Drama, and they actually managed to film the series, and they've been, you know, shown on TV already. They got commissioned, you know, new seasons. But at the same time, they're actually quite happy. We keep doing animation, so we are actually expanding. We sort of pitching and developing new ideas, so uh, we're setting up a proper animation department now.
0: And animation being a, a new venture at that point for the studio, on top of needing everyone to work remotely. You know, I'd assume they would have had to bring in completely new people than they were used to working with.
5: It was, well, first of all, bring in is obviously the, the, the term we normally use, but it wasn't actually bringing them in as in sure. nobody. <laughs> it wasn't an in to to be in, you know, uh, as in we already work remotely. For, for, this year was different. We, we actually had some people in the office and I was always going to the office and, a few people would come in every now and then. But last year was literally everybody was just um, uh, working remotely. It was, it was a mixture. So the, um, the friend that I have in, in Genoa, in Italy, that had the contact to uh, Quentin Blake, is a graphic designer, but also a, a an animator. So he, he had done stuff before. So part of the process was actually um, in his studio uh, in Italy. So all the uh, coloring, the compositing was all done. That uh, was all well done there, for instance. Um, in terms of animators, it was pretty much like thinking, okay, which <laughs> it was a very uh, Funny process. I mean, it was just thinking, okay, what kind of films or, or, or TV programs we know that have a traditional animation uh, that can kind of somehow resemble what what you know could be an animation with Quentin. So something that is less. Um, perfect and a bit more sketchy, and a bit more loose, so we started sort of researching things like that. We went literally on Vimeo, LinkedIn and looking at uh, people's um, showreels and stuff and little by little we found the people we liked and we approached them. Um, well, not even little by little actually, it had to be quite an intense and fast process because of the tight time-, time frame that I was discussing before. Um, so it was a mixture of things and then a lot, of course, of, of um, recommendations from, from people. So if somebody wasn't available, they would sort of lead on to another contact and then, you know, asking again, producers in the field. Mm. Um, for instance, one of the um, collaborations I did in the past in terms of, um, of motion graphics was with Tiger Aspect. Uh, Tag as well, is a company that does uh, a lot of um, different things. They have uh, departments for drama, for comedy, for entertainment, for um, uh, factual, and they also have, of course, animation. So they are the ones behind Charlie and Lola, behind Mr. Beans, and so, uh, you know, uh, so they again i knew them so i got in touch with them and they gave me a few pointers so it was literally just you know because it was so fast as well uh we had to be and we knew it was kind of a last minute call for a lot of people so not everybody would be available we had to just try every possible route to put together the crew
0: and you mentioned the really sort of insane hours on that one I mean, was that something that was sort of more limited to, like, you and the kind of core production team?
5: Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. We we never asked animators to work 16 hours a day, also because I (laughs) think that you wouldn't be able to just keep saying if you did that. You know, animation, I think, um, is a very intense process for for, for animators, I'm talking, you know, specifically. Uh, Also for compositors, you know, a lot of other people, but I think animators specifically have... Well, we all work in the field. We all love it, of course, but uh, it can be quite demanding mentally. I think so. There's only so many hours you can do in a day before you really break down. And so, um, so yeah, it was mostly just just the sort of the uh, production team and the core production team, I would say. So it was mostly me, Luigi Berio, the director, and and uh, two other two three other people that were uh, uh helping sort of you know uh, production managers and so on uh but actually then you know not to that stage i think that the 16 hours a day was literally just the two of us me and the director and uh, which was quite fun because you know <laughs> uh six in the morning we would be already um up and running and and chatting through um uh WhatsApp or whatever, because he was in Italy, I was in London, and uh, and then at eleven o'clock at night, we would still be there. So it was uh, yes, a very intense collaboration with
0: him. So yeah, certainly from seeing people who have worked on these projects, the way they kind of talk about them, I definitely get the sense that it was a very positive experience and one that they're quite keen to shout about and that's always a good sign
5: yeah absolutely it it, it was uh and especially after the experience of clown having so much um you know so much to do in such a short time this year even though we still had quite a tight um time frame because we had 10 months to you know to make the 24 minute animation Uh, obviously nothing compared to the five months we had for clown but um, I was always very um, uh, paying a lot of attention to you know uh, making people excited about the project and making sure when for instance one of my biggest challenges sort of a a good challenge something I really found interesting was trying to always give space to animators and background artists and and, and compositors and everybody, but, you know, all the the creatives in the process, trying to find the right balance between what what was my original vision for the animation, the film, and the input they could have in it. So whenever I was briefing an animator, for instance, for a new shot, um, I was always trying to give the important pieces for the brief, you know, important information and what needed to happen. Um, and the if there was a specific thing that I was keen uh, to have on screen, I would just uh, talk about it, but then leaving enough space for animators to actually suggest ideas and, and try mm-hmm. things. And I, I I think in the end that paid, uh, paid off quite well, both in terms of, making sure that actually if everybody chips in with ideas the final product is obviously much better because you know uh, i think it's silly for a, a director to be a, sort of a dictator saying this is what i want that was my vision and nothing else <laughs> i think that this is a this is teamwork so it's silly i think it's actually counterproductive to not to make the most of it but also, mm-hmm. I think that in that way, animators were more involved in the project, and you know, and they were actually more uh, enthusiastic about it. They they felt you know happier. They could actually give more in that respect. I, I think it's just a win win scenario in doing that thing. So, for me, it was very important, and I, I I hope I managed because that's the kind of feedback that I got from from people within the team. So,
0: so with uh, this year, we have Snow Baby. And did this come about because yeah. off the back of the successor clown, or was it something you kind of had your eye on before?
5: No, no, it came, but it came literally because uh Chanel Four said, um, you know, we're very happy with how Clown did, you know, it was a fantastic story for Christmas. And so would you have a new idea for 2021? And so we started looking at um uh uh books to to base a new animation on, both illustrated and non-illustrated. And Joe McGrath, one, um, one of the founders of E. drama, uh, came across this collection of short stories by Terry Pratchett, which is called Father Christmas's Fake Beard. And among the short stories, uh, one was actually The Abominable Snowden. And uh, I, I, I had read Terry Pratchett before. I knew him. Um, I'm not a big fan of fantasy per se, but I really like other Work that he's done, that is a bit uh, more sort of based in reality, but always with the wonderfully weird things happening. And so, um, and I always thought that his amazing gift is to write books that talk to both children and adults uh, very well, so that they can be enjoyed by all ages. So I actually immediately thought, "Oh, Terry Pratchett is actually a very good idea." So obviously, the final decision was in Charles's four hands. But um, I was also quite keen on it because I thought, okay, since I have the opportunity this time to be director on the film, um, if we do, if we work on the adaptation of an illustrated book, of course we need to keep as faithful as possible to the original illustrations because that's you know the actual brief, of course. But with Terry Pratchett, it was different. It was just a text, and so I knew that I could have actually carte Blanche to design characters to come up with a whole look for the film and and that was incredibly exciting for me so obviously that was immediately my choice you know but also the story i just find fantastic i loved it i, I read it and, and loved it immediately and i could see it I, i'm sure it happens to a lot of people in the field but my my mind works very much um uh, with images so i'm um, I'm not very good, for instance, i remembering concepts and numbers and figures. You know, I, I if, if I go into a shop and come out with some shopping, uh, a minute after leaving the shop, I will not remember how much I spent. Uh, numbers really don't stick in my head images do, and I have a photographic measure, uh, memory. So, you know, if I see something, if I've seen something 10 years ago that I like, I will totally remember it, you know, and in, after a very long time. So when I read a book, for me, it's always like a text. If I can imagine it in my head, then I, I know that I have um, uh, I have something good to work with, and I know that I can actually turn it into images because I can immediately see it. Uh, and that happened with with this story, so so we pitched it to Channel Four, and and they liked it immediately. Uh, obviously, very happy to to work, you know, with uh, somebody like Terry Pratchett. Obviously, he passed away sadly about six seven years ago. But um, we started. Uh, we approached the um, uh, company that manages his literary estate, Narrativia, and they have been absolutely. Uh, enthusiastic about the idea since the first moment. And they have been really, really, they've been a fantastic travel companion really, because they, they just loved the process throughout and they were always um, very enthusiastic and uh, very excited whenever we're showing developments, you know, um, animatic and character design and whatever. So it's been really, really good working with them. So it was actually quite, um, I
0: like you find in a way. Um. to the uh, visual style of the film, and I think the sort of commonly imprint version of the story it's based on is illustrated by Mark Beach, uh, which I think is fair to say he's pretty heavily influenced by Quentin Blake. This adaptation is clearly not that direction. it's something kind of different. And I suppose I was wondering if maybe that was because Clown had that kind of Quentin Blake aesthetic or is it more? Is this more representative of your own style, for example?
5: It's a bit of both. I mean, yes, when we saw those illustrations, of course, we we, we did think, you know, yes, uh, there is a similarity in the terms of style, um, uh, with Quentin style, I mean. Um, we discussed this with the turner pressure estate and they immediately said, we're not married to this um, type of, of um, imagery at all. So you don't have to stick to that. Uh, and because, um, I had already worked on clown, and I knew it was also quite a challenge to work with that very sketchy style. And, and at the same time, because I was so keen to actually have a chance to, you know, uh, give more, uh, give myself more freedom to create the look for the film, then we decided to actually n- not use those illustrations and start from scratch. Um, we just we just wanted to go for a more uh, it's also the, the, the sort of the, the brief we set ourselves as a company, with Egoi. We just wanted to have a more traditional, almost classical Disney type of feel in a way. Um, obviously, it's not that, but uh, it's, it's sort of a, a modern version of it. But um, with Quentin style, just you know there's only so much you can do in terms of pushing. Um, visuals in terms of depth of field in terms of lighting in terms of there's a lot of things that because of his style you have to keep quite flat he has to be a bit more dimensional to look like it's actually something drawn on paper you know it's that kind of feel with Moby, in this case we thought okay we have you know complete freedom so let's go for something a bit deeper and richer and you know and even the music, uh, the brief for the composer uh was more again referred to you know some of the traditional Disney films going through maybe a little bit of Daniel Elfman and adding you know some other elements. So obviously it is a mixture, you know. Uh, but the brief I gave him was again quite uh heavily influenced by the classics somehow. And uh and then you know again, it's a question of finding the right people. So one very important thing for me was backgrounds, of course, and and I found this fantastic um, background artist in France, Sarah Williamson, who just produced this amazing, uh, amazing, amazing uh, illustrations for interiors and exteriors. And we had a lot of dialogue on how to represent certain things and how um, realistic or sort of more abstract or even more emotional we could be with the, the backgrounds and the, the, the colors. And so it's been quite an intense process in that respect, but uh, really, really satisfying.
1: Hmm.
0: Were you able to bring people in for this one, like in-house, or was it also
5: remote? Um, it was mostly remote, okay. but... We we had um, so uh, my line producer Renata Garcia would come in probably once a week in the office. Uh, my head of production Isabel Nicholson was in most of most days. Um, the executive producer Tess Camin is based in Bristol, so uh, but she would come in at least once or twice a month. So we're trying as often as possible to have. People, you know, in in the same room, and oh my God, it makes such a huge difference. Mm. <laughs> Instead of having set up to set up a, a Zoom call, you can literally just turn your head and say, "Oh, b- b- by the way, that thing you remember," blah blah blah, and in five minutes, the the thing is sorted and and, and decided. It, it I you know I dream of the day when we will be able to go back to that. But talking about it actually with my animators and compositors and everybody else, they were saying. They also miss some of that, of course, um, both because of even the camaraderie of just being together with the family and sort you of know, having colleagues to talk about. But it's also often a question of um having you, you know, you 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 grow as a creative, I think, also by comparing yourself with your peers and sort of look at what other people are doing, how they're doing, you know, how they're going on about certain things. How do you sort out that problem? How do you do this? It, it, it's sort of, you know, you, you learn from each other a lot. So we tried to set up some Zoom calls for people to discuss these things. But obviously it's different when you don't sit around with a computer. It's a bit more mechanic, it's a bit more cold and, and less, uh, really less inspiring, I think. So we tried that, but, you know, it didn't really help that much. Mm. So talking about it with my animators and compositors as I was saying and I agree it's probably the case they feel that after this experience remote work uh, you know working from home will be kind of the the rule uh, mm. going on you know in, in the future because it's probably easier you know you have more flexibility with your time you can start later and end later if you want to, you don't have, you know, we didn't set up a specific, we had, of course, day- times in the day for dailies, you know, for just to to, to review what was going on, but uh, people could, you know, work late, we didn't mind really, you know, as long as we had deliveries every day. So, uh, obviously, that changes if you are everybody in one room, because it's obviously it makes more sense for everybody to be there at the same time, otherwise there's no point in <laughs> having people in the same room. So I, I don't know, I think that this global experience has really changed how things you know, will shape up in the future. And probably I think that many people will prefer to stay home and working with their own computers, with their own material. They might have you know, even books for reference, whatever. It's just sort of a different environment. I don't know um i i will try as much as possible in the future to at least have people coming in house to develop things for instance you know when you work on development for characters for background or even for the the general look with compositors (laughs) discussing things for instance with my lead compositor simone villardotti he was saying that he loves sitting next to the film director and just working together you know looking at things and trying things to find the right looks and textures and then lighting and then and i find that process fantastic and again it has to be done side by side i don't think it's really i mean we did it you know not you know we, we didn't do it side by side this time we did it remotely because when we started we were in the middle of a lockdown but um clearly it could have been more pleasurable more uh, successful even probably but surely even shorter you know as a process if done side by side so i will definitely strive for that in the future but i know that things have changed so yeah
0: something that really struck me about this film looking at the screen, was how consistent the overall look and feel of the performances were and that was something that i would speculate might be trickier when people aren't all in house was there like a challenge in kind of keeping that look consistent
5: yeah it was a challenge to be honest and i must really uh, mention my fantastic animation supervisor reg isaac who was also one of the animators on the project but he was also uh in charge of mostly keeping sure, making sure that the consistency was kept you know throughout the the whole thing but it was something that we constantly kept an eye on and constantly referred to you know um every day at dailies uh, it was probably one of the main things we had in our heads you know that we needed mm-hmm. to make sure about because uh, it clearly is a problem, you know, because you don't, you have, uh, all the animators were looking at each other's dailies. So they were always constantly kept, you know, in the loop and and they knew uh, uh, what other people were were doing with the characters and and, and how to make them move. We tried to of course have all possible basis for the animation as in you know uh, proper model sheets and uh, expressions and head turnarounds and we we tested uh, the way some of the characters moved for instance uh, the main protagonist apart from snow baby of course is a uh, granny who is this 98 year old lady who is um obviously very old but at the same time full of vigour and energy and she's the sprightliest in in town you know everybody else is actually much less energetic than she is so when she walks we wanted to give her a a, a walk that could express both her age and her energy which clearly are things that go against each other somehow but we found a way like with this very fast pace of walking, and, but with a sort of stiffness of, you know, shoulders and neck. And and but we, so we studied these things as much as possible. I mean, it's quite normal, of course, in every animation, but uh, we try to be, you know, within the small production because it wasn't a huge Hollywood movie, of course. So we had limited the resources to be as um, clear as possible um, in terms of the references the animators could use. So that the consistency could be easier to keep really, and uh, yes, it was well, I'm glad that you say this actually because it was always in our head and we were you know once you see once you see your work a million times, which always happens, you kind of start losing a sense of is this actually okay or not you know so. <laughs> So hearing it from, from somebody like you say that you know the, the, the style feels more very consistent then makes me quite happy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so Thank you.
0: So yeah, moving forward, then do you see yourself or the studio kind of continuing down the path of adapting books and short stories, or are you maybe inclined toward developing original stories?
5: We would like to do both, um, sure. so we do have um, conversations going on with other um, uh, on other books uh, that have already been published and um, authors, and so you know uh, there there are dialogues being carried forward. Uh, uh, both, I, I suppose, I can also say you know with the people that we worked with before. So we talk, we're still talking with the Terry Pratchett estate, we're still talking with Quentin Blake. Nothing confirmed and nothing, you know, but we are discussing this. We are talking about uh, um, uh, adaptation of other authors, other illustrators, but we are also developing concepts uh, of our own. We would also love to have our own intellectual property, of course, but I also have my own ideas that um, I've been developing in the past. You know, there are ideas that I had for, for instance, a graphic novel uh, that I think would make a fantastic feature film, animated feature film. And we are um, sort of starting to talk with writers and people that can actually help us to develop it properly. So um, we are looking into an idea we had for uh, a series for children. So. It's, it's still kind of early days, you know, we've only been, you know, uh, we, we launched our animation department people I like, uh, only, well, less than two years ago, it's a year and a half ago, already. so. Um, but, you know, we managed to do, you know, to accomplish quite a lot, I feel, in this short period of time. And uh, we have clearly a, a thirst for growth and we would love to expand and do other things, you know. Um, at the moment I feel a little bit like uh, a kid in a toy store you know just thinking Ooh, there's so much I could play with now And yeah. so now that I've gone through the door you know it's not just what I could see in the display window there's a lot and uh Obviously, things take time, and uh, I have to <laughs> force myself not to get too overexcited about things. <laughs> but uh, there's only so many hours in the day, and certainly I cannot keep working 16 hours a day like a big clown forever. Sure. <laughs> so, um, uh, but yes, there's definitely you know, uh, quite a big slate of ideas that we are bringing forward. And, and watch the space, because there's clearly more to come, for sure yeah
0: and that was Massimo Fanati the director of The Abominable Snow Baby from Eagle Eye Drama and that will be on Channel 4 on Christmas Day at 7.30pm and you can also check out Eagle Eye Drama's previous Channel 4 Christmas special Quentin Blake's Clown which is currently on all four at the moment or 4OD whatever it's called nowadays the you know, the Channel 4 on demand thing there's a making of as well so uh, yeah Lovely stuff. Well, looking forward to that. Hope you'll uh, have a wonderful holiday season and uh, you stay safe and you stay healthy. Stay Christmassy. That's about all I got.
1: (laughs) Stay Christmassy.
0: Perfect. Thank you again for joining us, everyone. I've been Ben Mitchell. You've been Steve Henderson.
1: I certainly have.
0: Yeah. Still? Cool. Awesome. Don't forget, you can follow Squiggly on the social medias. We're at Squiggly on Twitter at squigglyanimation on Instagram and facebook.com slash Magazine. Of course, the website is still squiggly.com or squiggly.co.uk if you like typing in extra keystrokes. Until the new year, I'm pretty sure we're done for this year. Until the new year, merry,
1: seasonal, happy animating. Merry, seasonal, happy animating. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Oh,
0: get out of here, you. <laughs>